Uh, one uh, just brief um, kind of follow-up to Matt's announcement to our new church name. Um, already had somebody ask, all right, so when do I start to put a new name on the checks as I write them and things like that? We'll let you know because this is obviously just in. Um, this is our new name, but now we have to go through all the, the different um, details with the banks and our website and all those kinds of things to actually do the process of uh, changing over our name. Uh, so for now, if you could just continue to ooh, excuse me, uh, write things to Sovereign Grace Church, that would be most helpful right now. Well, we are continuing our series on the book of Ephesians and beginning chapter 4. We'll read there in just a few moments. But you can go ahead and begin to turn there. A week and a half ago, Detroit Lions defensive tackle Ndamukong Sue. <laughs> yeah, don't ask me to pronounce his name again. Was fined an NFL record $100,000 for his illegal block on Minnesota Vikings center John Sullivan during an interception return. Essentially, he went after his knee with a low block. The high price tag was justified by the fact that this was not Sue's first offense. Football is a collision sport where injury is a constant risk. But there are also rules and regulations, standards in effect to minimize serious injuries as much as possible. This makes sense for multiple reasons. For starters, our our modern sensibilities and morality wrestle with entertainment where serious injuries are a purposed feature. Not to mention it would also be foolish financially for the league. The NFL is a multi-billion dollar business. If you want to put out your best product on display week after week, you can't allow players to intentionally injure one another because their people and their reputation are worth protecting the NFL has a lot at stake in player safety enough to send a $100,000 message to a repeat offender last week his response so far appealing the fine and being quoted as saying I don't change So far in our study of Ephesians, Paul has been talking about something of great value and worth to God. The church is worth protecting because his people and his reputation are on the line. Paul has taken three chapters to highlight the amazing riches we have in Christ and some of the eternal purposes we have. As his church, how the church reveals mysteries long hidden of God's nature that are now revealed through the church, even to the angels and the demons and the heavenly hosts. He has a lot at stake, therefore, in how the church lives out its call. In today's passage, we come to the hinge point, the turning point of this letter To the church in Ephesus. 
we transition from looking at the new society to the new standards which are expected of it. From what God has done to what we must be and what we must do. From this mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth concrete implications in everyday living. Much more than any NFL player, we are people of tremendous privilege and blessing. And that reality carries with it responsibilities in how we conduct ourselves as children of the living God. For recipients of His redeeming grace, it matters how we live. So the question we face today is, will we embrace His high calling? Or will we instead declare with our actions, I don't change? Would you pray with me as we ask God to help us Father, thank You for the wonderful truths that You have revealed in Your Word. Blessing upon blessing that You have bestowed upon us because of Christ, that You have imparted and revealed by the work of Your Holy Spirit. We have a rich deposit as we have studied and seen over these last several weeks. But it's not just for our knowledge that You have given these things. So that we might be transformed. So that we might reveal these great truths in our lives, in our relationships. And so we pray that You would help us. You would help us to do that today. That You would help us to ingest these things that we might turn and and reflect these things. For Your great name and for our good, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Eternal realities must be walked out one day at a time. Read with me. Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's no notes this morning because of a technical difficulty. The difficulty was that technically it was hard for me to get to that this week. (laughs) But I will just give you a brief outline of this message, this passage, and then how we're going to walk through that in this message. In verse 1, we have a reminder of the first three chapters. We'll go over that briefly in just a moment. And then we have this call to live in a way that is worthy of all that we've been looking at. In a way fitting the truths that have been expounded in these first three chapters. In verse 2, we see specific attributes 
characteristics of what it means to walk as worthy. And then in verses 3 through 6, we have this strongly punctuated emphasis on unity, on oneness. Again, reminding us of these high truths that we are one because God is one. And today, the way that we're going to walk through it, not quite in order, we're going to begin in verse 1. Looking back at all the things that we've been reminded of for these first three chapters, then we're going to go to verses 3 through 6, where he highlights these new, this new emphasis, this continued emphasis on unity. And then finally, we'll go to verse 2, where we hit some of the more practical elements of what this means to walk it out in our relationships, in our local body. We want to see these eternal realities must be walked out one day at a time. So we start off in verse 1 with, I therefore. And so, of course, we ask, what is that therefore? Therefore. As I mentioned a minute ago, this is a pivot point for the whole letter. The whole letter is changing its focus in these verses. From doctrine to application, from great truths to corresponding everyday actions. So that, therefore, is looking back to all that has been covered in the first three chapters. It's looking back just as a quick refresher to our God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The one who predestined us in love for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. The therefore is there to remind us that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and have been given the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance as well as the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. We're to remember that Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive in Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. This, therefore, is pointing to and reminding us of the reality that by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, though that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Prepared beforehand, walked out now by us. Furthermore, it's there to remind us that what we have looked at these past couple of weeks that you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not just near to God Himself. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one as He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility between God and man and between man and man as well. And together He has made us into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He has revealed to us the amazing mystery of how God has revealed now that Jews and Gentiles together are to fulfill His purposes 
as his people, Jews and Gentiles, no dividing wall, black and white, men and women, rich and poor, engineers and artists, Clemson fans and South Carolina fans. No more dividing wall of hostility. No division. But together we are all to display the manifold, many-colored, beautiful wisdom of God as fellow recipients of the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is something that, that wasn't revealed in ages past but is now to be the testimony of the church. Lived out and displayed to the world and even to the rulers in heavenly realms who give God glory for what they see, mystery of mysteries, displayed in us. That's why Paul prayed that his readers would be rooted and grounded in love. Strengthened with power through His Spirit to comprehend the breadth, length, width, and depth of the knowledge surpassing love of Christ. And to be filled with all the fullness of God. Of course, such a, such a prayer could only be prayed to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. And is therefore worthy of all the glory for the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That is what the therefore is there for. So he begins, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul reminds them of their position, their great place they now have with Christ. But he doesn't want them to be content simply with position. He has something more in mind than just their eternal, right-standing, unchanging place with God. He also wants not just what they will be forever in heaven, in glory, to be a comfort, but he says there's something else that has to take place. There's personal transformation in the here and now that is to show what is eternally true. Therefore, because of all these glorious truths are real, he's saying, live like it. Show it. Walk in a manner worthy of such a calling. Just as the NFL has a standard that they believe is worthwhile because they have things worth protecting, things that they want to reveal who they are and what they are like, how much more does God have the right to call His followers to live in a particular manner in order to reflect Him, who He is and what He has done for us? 
That's why eternal realities must be walked out every day. But maybe not exactly the same way that you might think when hearing that we're to walk in a manner worthy. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, and his squad are on a mission to save Private James Francis Ryan, played by Matt Damon. They were to bring him back home safely because his three brothers had been killed in action within one week of each other. And the War Department decided that losing all four sons would be too great a burden for their mother to bear. So when the rescue squad finally located Private Ryan, he refused to desert his unit. He didn't want to abandon them. See, his small, shot-up squad had been given a mission to defend a strategic bridge in Normandy. So in order to be able to fulfill their call to save Private Ryan, Captain Miller and his squad reluctantly joined with the other soldiers and Private Ryan to defend the bridge against the Germans. And at the climax of the film... Captain Miller was mortally wounded in the effort to save the bridge. As he sits there, he's firing his 45 really helplessly at a tank. When reinforcements arrive, plane blows up the tank. Um, the Germans flee. And Private Ryan rushes to Captain Miller's side to check on his condition. The captain looks at Private Ryan, the man he was sent to save, the man that he and his men, many of them by giving their own lives, did save. He quietly says, earn this. Now the sir Ryan asks as he draws in closely and this time firmer his final words earn this. The next and final scene of the movie shows the 74 year old James Ryan from Peyton, Iowa threading his way through the perfectly lined white crosses of St. Laurent Military Cemetery in France. He has returned with his wife, with his children, with his grandchildren on a vacation. And he searches until he finds a white cross that marks the grave of Captain John H. Miller. Ryan looks at the cross and speaks to it as if he were speaking to Captain Miller. And he says, I've tried. Tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that's enough. I didn't invent anything. I didn't cure any diseases. I worked the farm. I raised the family. I lived a life. I only hope in your eyes at least, I earned what you did for me. That may be a fine Hollywood ending to an epic war movie. But I think it makes for a lousy way to live. Paul is making clear that we have an extremely high calling as Christians. But when he says that we are to walk in a manner worthy, he isn't saying to us, 
earn this. You see, there's a huge difference between walking in a manner worthy and being worthy. And friends, Christ went to the cross because we aren't worthy. We will never be able to be worthy in the sense that we deserve the calling that we have. We are to live in such a way that we reflect that calling. We are to reflect what He has done for us. But we cannot earn our calling. What we have has been given to us. It is a gift and it is free. In light of that, we choose to live in such a way that reflects the grandness of the gift we have been given. Not in a way that reveals us as debtors. The reality is there, there is no way Private Ryan could ever earn the lives of those that sacrificed themselves for him. How much more is that true of us? Instead, we walk humbly. We walk gratefully as recipients who are amazed at the loving sacrifice of God's Son on our behalf and the generosity of our loving Heavenly Father who adopted us, who didn't need to, but He chose to include us in His family. That should amaze us. That should affect how we live. That should reveal in our actions God should be able to be seen in the wonder in which we live out our lives. We see this not only in Paul's writing, but really from his life as well. Even, even him here repeating the fact that he's writing this from prison is a statement of his own commitment to walk in a manner worthy. This is the degree to which it has cost him something to walk this out in a manner worthy. These things that we've been looking at for these last three chapters have so captivated Paul's heart that he has been transformed from the Jew of Jews who was persecuting and imprisoning others for their faith in Christ to now himself being imprisoned as a minister of Christ's Gospel. Specifically, for preaching that Gospel to the Gentiles who he formerly thought had no place in God's kingdom. His entire life, where he is sitting writing this letter from right now in prison, their testimony to a transformed man. Living in a manner worthy can be costly. For Paul, it meant his freedom and ultimately it would mean his life. But, by placing his proximity, his imprisonment in proximity with a worthy life, he's also saying loud and clear, and he wants the Ephesians to hear this as he's writing for, from prison, this is worth it. And he's talking about 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, live your life in a manner worthy. He's saying, there's no regrets about where I'm sitting right now. This is worth it for me. Exchanging my freedom for what I have in Christ. No contest. So he calls his readers to a life that reflects the worth, the value, the greatness of what we have been given in Christ. What in this life compares to the glory of riches of our inheritance with Christ? Friends, there is no contest. There will be no regrets for the life lived where His worth is central. The question is, do we believe that? Do our lives, does my life reflect that? Is there something He's even bringing to your mind right now that you're aware That doesn't really reflect that. Is there something that you've seen up to this point is too costly? You can't include that too. Friends, He doesn't want us to be content with our position, our standing in Him. He wants us to embrace the transformation that He is holding out available to us. It's not just for forevermore. It's not just for the sweet by and by. It's not just for the one day when I'm with Him. He wants it to be revealed and reflected as He transforms us this day. As we show now, He's worth it. No regrets. Because His eternal realities, the truths of His glories, they get walked out one day at a time. They get walked out here and now. Now the next three chapters of this book, the remaining three chapters, Paul will lay out different ways that it looks to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of our inheritance in Christ, worthy of our God and Father who in love predestined us, before the foundation of the world, worthy of the God who saved us by grace and has created us in Christ Jesus for good works that that we should walk in them. He is going to give examples of worthy walking for husbands and wives, for parents and children, for church member to church member. But in today's verses, he begins with the big picture. And so I want to skip ahead for a couple minutes to verses... 3 through 6. Because in these verses, actually, let's start with verses 4 through 6. Because in these verses, he, he amplifies the call to unity for all the church. And this isn't a new theme for this letter. This is what we've been talking about for the last chapter and a half as we've been highlighting the eternal purposes of God in uniting Jew and Gentile within the church, demolishing the dividing wall of hostility so that His multifaceted wisdom might be on display as He makes us both His trophies 
and ministers of reconciliation. See, our unity is a big deal in God's cosmic plan. Enough that Paul decides to punctuate it again in in verses 4 through 6 with an exclamation point. He writes, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You get the idea that that maybe from these verses, oneness is important. This is just this is a free tip, okay? If you're reading your Bible on your own and you come to a word that's repeated like seven times in like two or three verses, the author's trying to tell you something. And he's not trying to be subtle about it. The oneness and unity of the church is important to God. Not only is our unity important, it's rooted in the unity of God Himself. In fact, it's because it is rooted in God and not us and our strength and our ability, but because it's rooted in who God is and what He has created, our unity is as certain and as indestructible as the unity of God Himself. See, this passage clearly proclaims there is one body. That's it. There's just one. One hope. One faith. One baptism. There's not multiple ways to God. It's not multiple branches of His family tree. There is one family. One body. And each of these things are linked to a particular person of the Trinity who are themselves three in one. There is one body because there is only one Spirit. That Spirit that inhabits, creates, and dwells in that one body. There is one hope belonging to our call. One faith, one baptism, because there is only one Lord. So there is only one that we trust in. Only one whose actions have placed us in a position to be redeemed by God. So the faith for all who are redeemed are only in Him. There is only one faith. One baptism, one hope for any of us. And there is one Christian family because there is one God and Father. Because the unity of the church is created by the unified Trinity, it is as indestructible as the unity of God Himself. Yet, In verse 3, we are also called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Or the New American Standard uh, Version has it as preserve the unity of the Spirit. Again, acknowledging that it already exists. It isn't dependent upon us to create it. However, we are told to maintain it, to preserve it, 
So how does this work? Well, it works because these eternal realities are lived out one day at a time. We need to understand that the ones spoken of in verses 4 through 6 are they're an invisible reality. In other words, since, since the birth of the church a couple of thousand years ago, up through our present day and on to the day until Christ returns for His bride to take us home, there is only one church. Despite multitudes of denominations, factions, there is only one. One body. There is one saving faith. One hope for mankind. There is only one baptism by where by which Christ baptizes us, cleansing us in His Holy Spirit, making us one of His own. This is true for all time in every location. There is one. One church created and unified by the God who is one. Sadly though, that reality often remains invisible. It remains invisible to those in the church, to the world watching the church, perhaps even to the angels and hosts of heaven, because reflecting our oneness hasn't exactly been the greatest strength of the church throughout history or in our present day. But our call to maintain the unity of the Spirit is a call to reflect that invisible reality of our oneness in Christ visibly by how we relate to one another. We are to demonstrate to the world that the unity that we say exists indestructibly is true. And is present among us. It already exists eternally, indestructibly. God has called and made one body for Himself. One bride. But we are called to pursue it and to preserve it and to showcase it to the glory of the God who is one. Let's let's look at a picture for a moment just to help us to see Mr. and Mrs. Miller and their three sons. Call them John Boy, Jim Bob, and Bubba. Just trying not to pick anybody here I trust. One family. Marriage and birth. Parenthood. Unite them. But in the course of time, the Miller family disintegrates. Mom and dad quarrel. They try to stay together for the kids as long as they can, but eventually... They divorce. The boys also fight first with mom and dad and then with each other and they also separate. separate. They go their different ways. John boy, he goes to live in Canada. Jim Bob moves to Australia. Bubba heads to Belize. I don't know why Bubba would go there. They never meet. They never write, they never call, text, Facebook, they lose contact with one another. More than that, they actually change their names legally in order to 
further cut ties as much as they know how to do. That would be a fairly significant family disintegration. All mutual relationships have been severed. Now imagine that you are the Miller's cousins. Have they ceased to be a family? Have they ceased to be your family? Are they not still related by birth and blood? Are there not still indestructible bonds of family that link them despite their stubbornness? Now, it would be foolish to downplay the tragedy of their disunity by saying, oh, but you guys are still a family. You know, I mean, look at... That wouldn't solve anything. They aren't currently reflecting the family bond that they truly do share. But as their cousin, isn't that what you would appeal to them to display? Isn't that the reason reconciliation would be called for? Wouldn't you appeal on those grounds? Guys, you're brothers. She's your mother. He's your father. Make amends. Fix what you've broken. Reveal the union that you can't outrun. It's an inadequate example, but just as the Millers are still family, even though they're not demonstrating that reality visibly, so it is for the church. Now our bonds of blood are even greater because it's not the blood running through our veins but it's the blood that purchased us and brought us in to the Father's family. Our union is indestructible. The Spirit inhabits one body. Christ has given us a common baptism, a shared faith, the same hope. So the question is, how are we doing it visibly demonstrating that reality? How are you doing? Again, when I say visibly, I'm not referring to a plastic smile that pretends everything is good when we show up for a meeting. What are your relationships like with others in this local body? And yes, we're, we're... United with believers, past, present, and future, all around the globe. But we are called to reflect that union with those we are in relationship with at this time, in this place. This is where our unity, our oneness, is to be revealed to a watching world, to a watching cosmos. It doesn't see our oneness just with the folks that lived 200 years ago. Yep, they believe the same things. Okay, they must be one. And we're called to reflect that oneness with those that we're around, with those that He has placed us with in this location. God preserved this letter talking about His oneness for the whole church. But 
Paul is writing to a specific local church when he writes this. He was wanting this to be seen in that place. Not just for all believers, for all time. It's to be lived out in the local body. So, day by day, we must walk out the eternal realities that God has revealed with those around us. Is there someone you avoid? Are you harboring bitterness or unforgiveness towards anyone in this body? Is there anyone you share prayer requests about? That, truth be told, the way in which they're shared, the person with whom you're sharing them has a lesser opinion about that other person. Are you tempted to complain about someone that serves alongside you for not pulling their weight? Or someone in care group who monopolizes the discussion? Or someone under your care because they they tend to be needy or overly dramatic? Or someone in a leadership role because they aren't doing things the way that you wish they would or your former pastor did or the way you would if you were a care group leader? How is this indestructible oneness reflected in our relationships? In your relationships? In your heart? Do you consider others more important than yourself? Friends, this isn't any different than Jesus highlighting the two greatest commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and like it to love your neighbor as yourself, as much as yourself. Can any of us claim that we have done even that in just the short part of what has already been today? I can't. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace isn't easy or automatic. But Paul's pleading with us, it's worth it. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling we have received has some specific put-ons we are commended to in verse 2 that enables us to maintain and reflect the unity of God Himself. So read with me in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This would have been striking to his hearers. Because lowliness or humility was a much despised trait in the ancient world. The Greeks never used the word for humility in a context of approval, let alone admiration. Instead, that they saw it as abject, servile, subservient attitude. It was the crouching submissiveness of a slave. Not something any of them would strive for. It was not until Jesus came 
that a true humility was recognized. For he humbled himself. Which, if we think about it, is really saying something. God the Son left heaven, left His exalted place at the right hand of the Father in constant communion with the Father, where there was unending praise and worship of Him. He left that by choice to become one of us. One of us. Where his first breath was taken in a stable. Where his first night was spent in a trough for animals. Though he inspired the words penned by Moses and David and Isaiah, he patiently bore with the misguided questions of the disciples and the accusations of the scribes and the Pharisees. At His command, He had waiting legions of angels that stood at the ready to do His bidding. Yet He allowed His enemies to capture Him. To unjustly try Him. Crucify him. Even while it was his sustaining power that gave them breath and life every moment they were doing it. He created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He spoke in the wind and waves listened. The dead came to life and demons fled. Yet he did not defend himself. co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, He made Himself nothing for us as one of us. He sweat great drops of blood in agony at the approaching of the cross, yet He resolutely determined that His Father's will ultimately, not my own, be done. He was humble. His humility is essential for our unity. It made it possible. It brought us into the family. It made it a reality. And it's also the example that we're to follow. But also the hope that we look to when we fail. Pride lurks behind all discord. It is not difficult to see this all around us. Every conflict in the history of the world, whether it be Cain with Abel, to the current conflict in Syria, what was perhaps boiling over in your back seat as you drove here this morning, can be traced to a lack of humility. We need humility. As a church, as a church walking through multiple transitions, Big decisions right now ranging from what mission will define us and how we walk that out to how we affiliate ourselves and partner with others. Friends, we need 
humility. As a church filled with people who have different backgrounds and experiences and preferences about each of those issues and about pretty much every other issue, we need humility. God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. We need grace. We need humility. As leaders, we need humility. As care groups, as families, as individuals, we need humility. May God help us to be a humble people. As a church called to reflect the God who is one, we need humility. So do we hold our perspectives and opinions loosely? Or though we would never say it out loud, do we see ourselves as as kind of all-seeing, all-knowing in the situations that we find ourselves in? Are we marked more by gratitude or critique? Are we quick to encourage others? Do we assume that, that we are the exception when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, remember your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth, but God chose the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. He chose the low and despised of the world. Do you think you're the exception to that? Do we think that that's everyone else's resume, not mine? Those attitudes, when we have them, are church killers. They're they're testimony extinguishers. God has a lot at stake for His people and His reputation. So He opposes the proud. May He give us grace to be humble. Like it, we, we see gentleness or meekness mentioned next. This word was used of domesticated animals, the ox that would pull, tread the grain. So it's not a synonym for weakness. I think we can misunderstand that oftentimes when we, we think of gentleness or meekness. The ox is not weak, but it can be gentle. I think our we often misunderstand what gentleness really is biblically defined. In order to be considered gentle, first, you have to have strength or power. A baby is, is not gentle. A baby is weak. Dad needs to be gentle with the baby. Because if he were to use his strength unbridled, it would harm his child. Just like the greatest displays of humility can only come from those who have the most legitimate claims to greatness, those possessing the greatest strength and power are the ones capable of the greatest gentleness. Gentleness is a characteristic of the strong whose strength is under control. We need that as we relate with one another. There shouldn't be Shame in strength. But that, sh- that strength needs 
to be bridled. It needs to be under control. Jesus describes Himself as, as gentle and lowly of heart. And our great position in Him should produce a lowly disposition in us. Humility and gentleness should flow from our great calling. Pastors have a real authority, for example, which the church is told to obey. But the call for pastors is to not lord it over the flock. In a similar way, men are, are never to allow physical strength to equal domination in the home. Instead, husbands are instructed to love their wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, not to exasperate their children. Likewise, those with strong personalities shouldn't drown out the quiet or sheepish. Those with strong opinions shouldn't domineer the indecisive or the tentative. Those with strong faith, thank God for strong faith, but must not exercise their liberties in ways that cause those with weak faith to stumble. Gentleness, strength that is under control, like humility, is essential for our unity. Our great blessings and privileges are not for the purpose of placing us in a superior position to anyone else, but to give us tools and gifts by which to care for and bless those around us. Like our Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and laid His life down as a ransom for many, our heavenly status in Him calls us to gently bear with, serve, and restore those He places us with. Finally, with with patience, bearing with one another. Again, we need to look to Christ as the ultimate example of patience and bearing with others in love. His ministry was defined by this, as is the entire record of His dealings with His people The fact that human history didn't end in the garden with Adam and Eve and their fall is a testament to His patience. That the flood was only a one-time occurrence is because He is patient and bears with His people. Despite Israel constantly complaining against the Lord and departing from His ways, He brought them back to Himself. Time and again and again. The only reason He became one of us is so that He could forevermore make a way to bear with us through His death on the cross. He is patient. He has borne with us in love. So the question for us again is what does it look like for us to be patient with those around us? Who is God calling you to bear with in love? When change is not as quick as you would like. What is it? Who is God calling you to bear with in love? The way He is born patiently with you. Now, I want to be clear. I mentioned Christ's humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with us, not, not to guilt us into better living, So we can both reflect Him and be reminded that this is still His posture towards us. 
The sins that come to mind as we look at categories like this. He died for those two. The humility He displayed and that He fulfilled, He did for us. Even for the ways in which we fail in our unity and our oneness. He came for these sins too. He knows our weaknesses and has come to strengthen us. He knows our sins and failures. And He came to redeem us. Because God is one, unity is an eternal reality which must be the ongoing commitment of His body even though we currently live it out imperfectly. The call is worth the effort, writes the Apostle from prison. What is it worth to us? How is He calling us to display oneness? How can you reflect humility and gentleness and patience in your relationships and in this current season in order to display the bond of peace that we share? The eternal realities and the great truths that they are they must be lived out one day at a time by God's people. So, Redeeming Grace Church. Walk in a manner worthy of our name and the One who made it a reality. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You for this great call that You have included us in. Thank You that You sent Your Son who humbled Himself for us. Thank You that You have revealed Yourself to be one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet one God. And because of that, we are one. Help us, Lord. Help us to live like it. Help us to walk in a manner worthy. Help us to walk in a way that reflects Your oneness. Help us to be humble. To be gentle, patient, bearing with one another at this bond of peace which You purchased for us might be seen in us and You might be glorified. We pray this for Your fame, for Your glory to be increased. Amen.